there's a reason why you wanted to be able to keep these assets flying because they were providing direct support to ground forces. But it really drove home, we must get this fixed tonight. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. I'm Sharon Muscledare, and you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's episode, we meet Pete Nugent, who was a flight test engineer and project manager within the Royal Australian Air Force for more than 20 years before transitioning to civilian life last year. During his career in the Royal Australian Air Force, he deployed five times, and he's going to talk to us about his career and his life post-transition in today's episode. Pete, thank you very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Oh, thanks, Sharon. It's an absolute pleasure. So take us back to your early life. As a young boy, were you interested in aeroplanes? Uh, no, not necessarily, if I'm brutally honest. I grew up in regional Queensland, and the only way that I came to learn about the ADF was because I wanted to skip out of class, and I knew there was a presentation going on at the school hall, so I thought this was a good opportunity not to have to sit through business principles or something like that. I went along and heard about the options that were available. In particular, I was interested in ADFA as a potential entry point. And so from that point on, almost instantaneously, the idea crystallised for me that that's what I was going to do. Did you have any military influences in your family or anything like that that perhaps got you interested in that as a potential career? Uh, Not really, not strongly. I didn't know at the time that I had a rather significant link, let's say, to... uh, someone from World War One, And I had an uncle that was had served in the Navy. But other than that, I mean, I was clearly not necessarily close to my great-great-uncle. It wasn't of any great influence. We'll come back to the story of Tubby Clayton later on in the interview. So tell us about when you went along to that information session at your school then. I mean, were there people standing there in uniform and did you suddenly feel inspired? I mean, was it like what we see in the movies when people suddenly kind of get that sort of sense of realisation that they found something that has meaning for them? It possibly was, although clearly I'm no movie character. I'm sure there were people in uniform at the time. It's over 20 years ago. It's a bit 23, 24 years ago. A bit difficult to remember. But I certainly know there was video productions and, you know, there were brochures and I started going through those. And I remember coming home and telling mum and dad that this is what I'm going to do. I think Air Force is the place for me. From then, decided that all of my uh, work through school, et cetera, needed to be dedicated to going to ADFA as an engineer. So how easy was it to get into ADFA in those days? Difficult to say. I mean, you don't necessarily get visibility of the talent pool that's going along to these things. You prepare as best as you can. And then um, I jumped on the tilt train down to Brisbane, down to the Big Smoke. Got to stay in a um, hotel, which was a bit of a 
big deal for me with another guy and Jordan Coates was his name and we were I guess both successful and in class on day one together there at ADFA so I do remember as a 17 year old going and walking the streets of Brisbane the night before my interview probably probably stayed out a little too long just tantalized by all the lights and etc anyway it didn't seem to harm me nor did the Hawaiian shirt that I wore uh, today one of my interviews so it was a good experience and I didn't find it particularly difficult so seriously, you wore a Hawaiian shirt? Yeah, yep. I'm not proud of it, honestly. Uh, there are people there, there are a lot of private school boys and girls in suits and the like. And yeah, I wore a blue and white Hawaiian shirt thinking I might stand out a little bit and probably more than I cared to actually. But I think the recruiting staff uh, probably enjoyed something a little different. They obviously saw something in you because they did offer you a place and you did go to ADFA. So tell us about your first impressions when you got down to Canberra to the academy. What did you think when you first walked in? This was 1999, so it was the first year after the Grey Review, um, which was quite a, a cultural reform piece. So it was a, a different place to the year level before me that would have gone and, and seen the organisation. We were isolated, not from each other, but isolated from other cadets within the academy, the more senior cadets. There was a lot of time spent on you know, emotional well-being, equity and diversity. We did Tai Chi on the ground for uh, every day for six weeks. So I can still remember how to part the horse's mane. It was inclusive and I found the first six weeks to be just a good experience, good chance, lovely people. We were in an all-male division, which is no longer done, but we were segregated as a group of male engineering students. And um, therefore, you're in with a lot of people that probably got similar sort of ideas to yourself. And I thought, you know, the mates that I made there are still mates today. And uh, yeah, it was an excellent experience. Tai Chi on the parade ground. I mean, that must have been quite an incredible thing to be involved in. I mean, what was that like for you coming from country Queensland and then finding yourself learning Tai Chi at a military academy? It was pretty foreign. You all wore the academy tracksuit, which was um, rather swishy, nylon or nylon or something like that. And as everyone moved in time, the swishing would all be, you know, at the same time as well. It was, uh, yeah, it was bizarre. Not sure that it did much for my uh, education, let's say, as an officer or engineer in the Air Force, but still. What an experience. And what about the academic side? I mean, because clearly to become a flight test engineer, as you eventually became, you must have had a need for that academic grounding during your studies. I should have done. First to admit, I was a terrible student at the academy from an academic sense, not from the military side. I really enjoyed that. But I'd always found schooling quite easy and I'd worked really quite hard back home. And then you get to the academy and first year uni was very much kind of a replication of a lot of high school that I'd done. So I tuned out for much of it because I had done this before. And, you know, I'm away from home for the first time. I've got 40 mates. I've now got a steady income. So all of these things come together and find you spend more time out socialising than you do uh, when you probably should be studying. And, you know, coming into second year, the content that we were learning uh, changed and it was new and I still hadn't changed my study habits. So I got left behind pretty quickly, which was foreign for me because I'd always been a pretty capable student. And now I'm in a place where I'm, I just don't understand what's going on and really started to hate where I was, this feeling of being behind all the time. I loved the family environment there at ADFA, but the academic side, I could not care less about. 
it got me into a bit of strife naturally. I ended up being on a notice to show cause why I should stay in the Air Force because I was failing miserably some of these subjects, but I was uh, granted a bit of a lifeline, a kick up the bum and knuckled down and um, made it through my electrical engineering degree. Let's not say gracefully, but still got the piece of paper and the background knowledge and that was the four odd years there at, at ADFA was lots of good times. Anything away from academics was fun. Anything to do with actual study, ooh, not so much. But what did you learn from that experience as a young man at the very start of your Air Force career? I mean, that sense of, as you say, having to be confronted by not finding things easy and then having to fight to continue to do what you wanted to do. What did you learn from that? Uh, I think you start to develop good management systems eventually. It took me longer than most perhaps to get there. But um, when you come away from you know a really happy home environment and you're suddenly off the teat, so to speak, and running around Canberra, it took a little while before I started to work out simple things like finding priorities, working through deadlines, collaborating where necessary. And so a bunch of those skills. Also, in terms of you recognise that I don't want to get and do that again. And later, certainly, I was fortunate enough to be selected to go to test pilot school as a flight test engineering student. And I just loved the content so much more. So when you're studying something that you're really interested in, and at the time, I probably wasn't that interested in electrical engineering. But then as a flight test engineer, I was absolutely absorbed with the material. And it would be all that I wanted to do day and night. So yeah, quite different. Perhaps my time at the test pilot school was in some ways shaped by how poor a student I had been at the Defence Force Academy, but uh, I didn't want to return back to Arju as someone that didn't know their stuff. So tell us a bit more then about that experience of going to the flight test school. Because as you say there, I mean, clearly just your enthusiasm and love for your subject just comes through so strongly. What was it that intrigued you so much and fascinated you? Oh, I'm not sure I've stopped to think about that. Aircraft are a wonderful bits of kit. Let's not lose sight of the fact that this is the coolest service to be a part of out of the ADF. You would say that though, wouldn't you? Yeah, but it's true, right? Uh, the year at National Test Pilot School was, uh, this is 2008, and it was the best year I've had in Air Force. Every week I came away thinking that we'd fly a different aircraft or do a different technique, and I think that was the best week of this year to date. And then the next week we do something new and I think, oh my goodness, that was even better. Flying through the Mojave Desert and landing watercraft onto Lake Mojave, just south of Vegas and thinking, I am an engineer, what am I doing getting to do this uh, sort of stuff? But you go over there with a fellow uh, Air Force pilot, they become a test pilot, we become a flight test engineer. Um, I'm very lucky that the, the team of students that we had over there, we made uh, lifelong friendships and uh, we had a lot of fun and we studied really hard and we got to do some other things socially as well, which was um, lots of fun. So just incredible sort of um, each week was something to better the last week and, and that was my experience from TPS. You certainly worked very hard. Late nights, sure. Complex subject matter, yep. But I'm not sure the, the motivation for it that was just so, probably it was the fact that you were able to put that theory into such obvious practical context. Usually you might study it in the morning and then you're observing it in the afternoon in the air. And that was um, a great educational model, let's say for me, it sort of certainly resonated with me. You talk about this fascination then for aircraft and the technology associated with them, with the work you were doing. 
And you talk about them being the coolest machines. Can you tell us a bit more about how you perceive that? What is it about the aircraft as a machine that you personally find so fascinating and enthralling, both intellectually, but also it goes beyond just intellect, doesn't it? There's something else there for you. It still staggers me that you can look at a 787 or a large Airbus aircraft. It's a lot of mass sitting there. And just by making air molecules travel over the high side rather than the low side of the wing, you're able to create enough lift, enough force upwards to counteract the force of gravity acting on that mass. I mean, it's, it's, they're so heavy, right? We, we put so much stuff in them and still we can generate sufficient thrust and enough lift to be able to for flight to occur. And I think that still boggles my mind sometimes that that can happen. I just love the range and the force projection that they can have. So from an air power construct, I like the idea that you can strike deep strategically and return to base that rather than sitting in the mud. That's certainly appealing. They can do such diverse roles, particularly rotary wing assets. They can do some very cool things. It's just the weight that they can have in the war to be forged sounds is kind of disproportionate to the number of people that may or may not be involved to cause that effect. Does that make sense? It's a combination of power, ingenuity, human endeavour. So we've been talking about your time as a flight test engineer, but let's just go back briefly to after you left ADFA, because before you got to flight test school, you were also deployed and you also had your first posting after you graduated. So tell us a bit about that time. I was there in Canberra and was posted down to Edinburgh, down in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. I didn't know much about South Australia, but I've tried very hard not to leave since. It's a fantastic part of the world. I was posted down to P3 Orions. A year or so earlier, we had just started deployments to the Middle East in support of a couple of operations there. Fairly quickly, I found myself on the flight line as a maintenance officer, supporting the engineering uh, and maintenance decisions to make these aircraft get up and away. So this is before I head off to test pilot school. But with a friend of mine, now my uh, general manager actually, we were deployed together over there in the sand and it was operations pretty much day and night, just continually turning the aircraft around for um, overwatch support for areas of the, of the Middle East. And this aircraft is also known as the Adelaide aircraft, is that right? That might be more the term that I coined. Certainly, it's been all sorts of things. My friend calls it the Grey Valiant of the uh, of the ADF or the Grey Kingswood of the ADF. It's, yeah, the P3 Orion's a venerable platform, has served the country for a long, long time. And it's no longer in the inventory, which is a bit of a shame, but it's been replaced by, like all things, replaced by things more capable and yeah, it was a four turboprop large aircraft from the US and had its fair share of problems. Lots of avionics on board, lots to um, to get right to be able to perform the mission. So it could be a, a little temperamental at times. Yeah, it was much fun getting these aircraft down, turning them around and, and sending them off again as quickly as possible. Obviously not trying to prejudice the, uh, the inherent aviation safety of the aircraft as well. And what was it like for you being deployed? Did you ever have any sense of what army perhaps would have been coming across with that frontline exposure? Our command was quite good at making sure we were aware of the broader picture. You know, there's a reason why you wanted to be able to keep these assets flying because they were providing direct support to ground forces, often sometimes uh, with maritime forces as well for another part of the operation. You would often be able to sit through the intel debriefs or watch the footage and understand what was going on. That's as close to the experience as you could get, which was fine by me. 
but it really drove home. We must get this fixed tonight. Didn't matter what time of night that was or how long we'd been going at it for. We need that back up so that the broader coalition forces could have another asset providing uh, support later that day. Was there then a real sense of urgency around what you were doing in the Middle East at that time? Can I cache it as patient urgency? Yep, there's always an operational imperative to be able to fix aircraft and turn them around and make them available to the commander as quickly as possible. That never goes away. But in this game, in the aviation game, if you're to rush these things, if you don't provide the proper respect to the systems or the platform that you're working on, then you're at risk of, or you're putting other people's lives at risk. Uh, And so we want to be thorough with what we do uh, whilst not losing sight of commander's prerogative. Can you just give our listeners perhaps a little bit of background as to what specifically you were supporting at that time in terms of of ground forces in the Middle Eastern area of operations? Uh, I'd probably choose a different op that I was on, if that's okay. I was on exchange in the UK for a period of time at 51 Squadron. They were supporting um, maintenance on the Nimrod, and that Nimrod was patrolling up and down the coast as Hezbollah had kicked off. So this is 2006. We were out of RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus, uh, and the Nimrod was patrolling up and down, trying to uh, provide that support to those forces that were on the ground and the intelligence to commanders. Bunch of uh, sensors that are trying to extract as much information out of the battlefield as possible, and then being able to uh, help contextualise um, and help the decision making process for future days. We should also add at this time that in addition to your deployment overseas, you're also involved in the ADF hockey team and you went on a tour to the Western Front. So that was in 2005. The fact that sport plays such a prominent part within the Australian Defence Force is excellent. Certainly one of the things that first attracted me to the organisation too. Very lucky to play a lot of ADF sport, particularly hockey. That year, 2005, late 2005, we toured France, Belgium and the UK. We had a test series against Great Britain, games against each of the three services. And we broke the tour up midway through with a three or four day battlefield studies tour. So over to Northern France and Belgium. That was just an excellent experience. It was good to get off off the hockey field for a bit, actually, because things were pretty sore and tired by then. But just humbling to be there and we had wonderful tour guides and they took us and could show and demonstrate you know, how many lives were lost for that small, they call it a hill, but it was the slightest incline and that was every advantage on the field. And they talk about how many lives were lost just to claim that high ground. And we went all over different battles. It was just an incredible uh, three or four days there. And I was lucky enough, actually, to read the ode at um, IPA, Men and Gate, on one evening too. And that was certainly a highlight of my ADF career to be able to do that on behalf of uh, Australia that particular night. And being over there and being connected to Australia's long-standing military history, going back to the Great War and even prior to that with the Boer War, did you get a sense of your own service being contextualised within that historical background? Your own service melts away when you think about the sacrifice and achievements of those that have gone before you, particularly in the eras of the two world wars. So I guess it doesn't put everything in perspective when you, you know, just life, whether it's your service or not, I just think, goodness me, that must have taken a lot. It just must have scarred that generation and probably the next one. And what a terrible cost. It's not fun to reflect on, is it? But it's necessary at times just to really put in perspective what's important in your life and what's not. And you also had the opportunity to reconnect with family history. 
Tell us about your relative that you discovered had done some incredible things during his service in the Great War. Yeah, that's right. So we were, we were staying by chance in a village called Poppering, just outside of Ypres. And my family back home, you know, we were on the email to each other and they said, oh, you're not far away from Talbot House. And I thought, what? Tell me more about this. Like just one of those things that the family decides not to tell you about for the first 20 odd years of your life. But in any case, Talbot House was a respite home, let's say, that was developed by my great-great-uncle. He went by Tubby Clayton. He was a religious man, a chaplain from Australia, from uh, regional Queensland, who went over and served there during the First World War and ended up seeing out his years in Britain. And he created this house that was not far from the front and that was designed to provide silence if needed or books or music or just places where you could go and sit and reflect and you know his early writings reflect the fact that he recognized there's something about this mental health thing that's what we would call it today he was trying to provide somewhere where they could recuperate let's say from the the horrors that they had seen you know our side was lucky enough to go and tour through the home it still sits there today unchanged and um that was a pretty incredible experience to see. And I was almost learning at the same time that I was there. The guides knew a lot about this. So they were excellent. And, you know, the family kind of dropped the clue. And then I go on this journey of discovery mid-hockey tour to understand what this relative had done. And he'd later gone on to form the uh, TOC H movement around Commonwealth countries generally, certainly here in Australia. And he saw at his days at the Queen's request at All Hallows by the Tower, which was a, a church turns out related to the guy and surreal kind of experience, I guess. So let's then reflect then perhaps about where you went after you'd had your deployments to the Middle East. You've talked about 2008. You also then went on to deploy to Southeast Asia. And then obviously there came a point in your career where you decided that Air Force wasn't perhaps going to be long term for you. So can you just talk us through how that came about? I was a senior engineering officer at uh, one of the flying squadrons here in Edinburgh, and I'd spent a good number of operational deployments in Southeast Asia providing support on behalf of the Australian government. That was wonderful. You know, subunit command is so much fun, and I wish I could do it all again. But in truth, there are others that need to have a crack at it and probably make a bunch of mistakes just as I did and to learn from. A really good opportunity to see more parts of the world really focus what my own leadership style would be like and I learned a great deal from my commanding officer at the time who's arguably the best I've had in the service. So it was a really formative couple of years. My clock was ticking in terms of I knew I had to go to Canberra at some point and they, they weren't bad options by any stretch to go and leave Adelaide. And so I asked the career management agency what sort of ideas they had for me thereafter and there wasn't a whole lot of planning behind that. So either I wasn't featuring their planning, but planning was being done, which wasn't a good answer, or there was a lack of planning, that wasn't a good answer. And so I thought that, you know, I've just done 20 odd years, it might be a good time to try something new. I was probably ready to have a crack at something else. In some respect, I think I had done all the fun jobs that I wanted to do, as selfish as that sounds. There is no better engineering job than being an FTE. For an engineer, there's no better subunit command than Senjo. And then, my, then I had a job as a project manager in space acquisition. And that was 
lots of fun too. So I was staring down at having to go and do something that wasn't so much fun. And so I figured, well, I might need to go and understand what my options are outside. And part of the beauty of being able to do that with the current SIRCAP model in use within uh, the ADF is the flexibility. That wall between being out and being in is so much more permeable now than it had been in the past. So I'm currently a CERCAT 3 reservist. And my understanding is therefore I could sign on to join back into CERCAT 7, CERCAT 6 or full-time, part-time as a permanent Air Force member. I could sign today and you know could be back in on Monday wearing a uniform again. That's unlikely from my personal perspective, but there's that sort of flexibility that exists. And I think that's great for ex-service people to know that you can move between the idea the whole idea was flexibility and you can go and learn some great skills outside with defense industry or or even outside of uh, di itself and they can transfer back into a useful skill set that the services may wish to have later in life so certainly some of the things i've learned in my role since stepping out of the adf would be i imagine very useful if i was to go back and, and continue my service again Tell us then a bit about the role that you do have now that you've left the ADF full time and you're now in the civilian world. Yeah, so I've joined a small medium enterprise called AeroPM. It's a consultancy house, largely back into CASG and the so the capability acquisition and sustainment group, mostly on the acquisition side. We do a little bit of work with uh, three services as well into their headquarters. It's just been like a, a second defence family, if I'm really honest. There's very smooth transition. We have uh, something like 88% of our workforce are ex-veterans. And so we're doing the role that isn't all that dissimilar to when we, before we transitioned out. So it's been a very smooth transition and, and one that I found quite enjoyable. Also working on growing the business in a BD role here in Adelaide and uh, that's brought so many new uh, lessons to be learned and I've made a couple of mistakes along the way and I've you know worked out what my style is going to be and how I want to work as a, it's a really competitive environment and uh, it's probably something you never had to confront when you're in uniform you didn't really need to worry about the commercial pressures that exist but wham they hit you hit you right in the face here and it's good and it's fun understanding business intelligence and how to grow the strategy to be able to push our little company um forward is has been fascinating just been a such an easy transition for me which i appreciate it's not everyone's uh experience which is a shame that's why we spend a lot of time as our sort of social corporate responsibility working with other agencies to support ADF members that are considering transitioning that have already transitioned that potentially have lost their way um, with that transition hasn't worked out as smoothly it's something we care deeply about that side of the business is not about being able to recruit people far from it it's more about just caring for people that you know you either knew through a former life or you know that the sacrifices, the work that they had done to support the country and you want to make sure that you support them as well. Because this year, AeroPM's just been nominated as a finalist in the Prime Minister's Veteran Employment Awards. So they must be doing something right. Yeah, thanks. It's um, it's a second year in a row that we've been nominated and fingers crossed that we can go one step further and win the award this year. But there's so many players out there that are working really hard with a similar goal and good luck to all of them. We're all in it for the same reason, that is to look after our veterans. It's what we all care the most about. 
Because as you point out, I mean, this is an important issue. I mean, just for people listening to today's podcast, they'd be very aware that here in Australia, there's so much discussion in the media about veteran transition and the importance of having meaningful, empowering employment just to support health and well-being, as well as just giving people a way to earn a living. So perhaps given that your experience has been such a positive one, what would your message be to somebody who is looking to transition out, perhaps is feeling a bit lost? You'd want to make sure that you're utilising all the services that do currently exist as well. So whether it's government funded or otherwise, so the great work that places like Soldier On and Story Right do in uh, providing education, assistance with making that transition, I want to make sure that I'm accessing all of those. You've got to spend the time doing some research and having an appreciation for the skills that you've developed whilst serving in the military. You can translate those into speak that civilians would understand and value and see the value you've got to it's a real challenge to be able to learn how to sell yourself and importantly not selling yourself short there's quite a number of times that i'll have uh, blogsy come along and say oh, i was driving tanks or i just unpacked boxes or i did this or that but it does not reflect the actual pressures and and nature of the role that they did so often we're keen to sell ourselves short with the experience that we have when in truth we should be framing that far better and being able to help employers understand that I'm reliable. I'll always be here on time. I understand the greater strategic picture of what you're trying to achieve. I'm prepared to use my own brain to work out and provide solutions, not just the problems to you. I'm excellent at communicating. I can explain succinctly the nature of the issue that's at play here. I won't waffle. I'm literate. You know, there are so many things. Our service personnel are the best in the world. And yet, when we want to transition into the market, into the civilian market, we just don't think that we're worthy of the sorts of roles that we can and should be filling. Well, Peter, you're an inspiration to many young men and women who are looking to transition out. You've had a wonderfully successful career. Thank you for joining us on Life on the Line. Look, Sharon, thank you very much for the opportunity. And if I can, I'm so, like, you have such wonderful people on this podcast. And I honestly can't think why, how I fit into that, because it's been, it pales into insignificance compared to some of the great guests that you have. And also, thank you very much for all the work you do with the veteran community. It's very much appreciated. It's been wonderful talking to you, Pete. You've been listening to Life on the Line. I'm Sharon Maskell-Dare. Find out more about this podcast at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com where you can also sign up to our e-newsletter. Subscribe in your favourite podcast app or on YouTube. Follow us on social media at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at LOTLpod on Twitter. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget.